Hello, and welcome to Academy Conversations Uncut, a podcast of rare Q&As with the world's foremost filmmakers, hosted by the Academy and released for the first time to the public, unedited. Today's panel was recorded in September 2019 at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater in Beverly Hills, California, discussing the Academy Award-winning movie, Judy, a biodrama following the career of American actress Judy Garland during the final year of her life. We were joined by actor Renee Zellweger, director Rupert Gould, and producer David Livingston. The panel was hosted by Dave Carter. Here's Dave. Good evening, everybody. I'm Dave Carger. I'm a host on Turner Classic Movies, and I have the pleasure of introducing three people who were most integral to bringing this fantastic story to the screen. So please help me welcome them. First, the producer of the film, David Livingstone. The director is here, Mr. Rupert Gould. And the magnificent Academy Award winner, Renee Zellweger. Great to see all of you. David, I want to start with you. There was a stage production of a play by Peter Quilter called End of the Rainbow, produced in 2005, I believe. What are your recollections of seeing it and what struck you about it and made you think this is a film? Well, I just thought, I didn't know anything about this story. I just thought, what a remarkable story. Um, and uh, thought, well, I'll option it. And then the next day, it was on the front cover of Arts and Leisure, New York Times, I think. Is it LA Times? LA Times. Uh, and I thought, well, that's that then. Somebody else has got it. Scott Rudin's got it. Uh, but I knew the producer um, of the play. And I thought, well, I'll hang on in there. And we got it. And it was just, it was just, you know, there was something remarkable about it that you could have this huge star having been in London for this period of time and having died in London. Uh, and I thought, well, we should do something with this. So um, Rosalind Wilder, I tracked down the real Rosalind Wilder, who you see in the film, and she opened the uh, gates for us. She introduced us to people that have never sp spoken about Judy Garland ever. So. Mm. Uh, a dresser who lived in South Africa who, you know, very tentatively spoke to me and said, I haven't spoken about Judy for 40 years. Um, we spoke to people that were members of the band. We spoke to dancers. And so we gradually kind of this story emerged that was much more detailed than a kind of the three-hander version of the play that I hope has made it more, you know, real and genuine and given it a, a fabric that it didn't have before. But we were, you know, it was thrilling. You say it was a three-hander of a play. Who were the three hands? Who were the three characters? In uh, it was Mickey Deans, uh, it was Judy, and it was a pianist called Anthony who was, a, who, was, who was an invention. And that was one of the things that I wanted to kind of try and avoid, try and keep it to largely the real people that were really there. Got it. Rupert, this is your second feature film. Uh, you're also a very accomplished stage director. I got to see your production of Ink on Broadway this summer, which won a couple Tonys. Um, this film, I really feel like, allowed you to combine you know, your different talents of theater and film and bring a lot of your theater-type experience to bear for the film. Was that part of the appeal for you? Uh, yeah, I guess maybe at some level. I think I, I felt that I'd spent... Uh 
20 years in rehearsal rooms, very close to <laughs> extraordinary performers and singers. And there's something about being in a rehearsal room where you're as close as we are now, which is you never get on the stage because there's a natural distance. And I felt like kind of witnessing the extraordinary pressures that performers go through, the sort of transcendent glory that they can find kind of in the discovery of their talent, particularly around music and singing and opera and musical theatre, that kind of thing. Uh, I, I felt like it would be wonderful if we could try and, obviously Garland you know, had that in spades, if we could try and capture what it meant to perform and, 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 and sing and, and the costs of that and also the, um, the calling of that in a way as well, aside from all the extraordinary details of her life. Renee, you've obviously sung in a film before, Chicago, and got an Oscar nomination for it. But when approached with this, yes? When approached with this idea, when you first heard about the idea of playing Judy, if one side of the spectrum is, I'm in, and the other side of the spectrum is, nope, too scary, where did you fall at the beginning? <laughs> it depends on the day, I suppose. Um, those are the, the, the thoughts going between the two kept me up at night for quite some time. Um, and then there was this shift in perspective. Um, there was no conversation about um, the official beginning of the process. There was just an invitation to come and have a little chat. <laughs> and so the fellows invited me to London to just talk about it. We'll just talk about why, um, you know, the motivation for making the film, why to tell this story at this, you know, about this chapter in her life. Um, try some makeup looks. Let's try this wig. Uh, and then they said, and we'll try some songs. Um, and we'll book some time at Abbey Road and you'll just come and you'll practice some songs at Abbey Road. And I said, let me just put that in my calendar. I'll be right there. <laughs> <laughs> we chatted about this film yesterday, and one thing I didn't know until yesterday morning was that you did part of your process in, in learning the voice and getting comfortable with the voice in your car, <laughs> oftentimes on the 405 freeway. So if, if one of us were to have been driving past you on the 405 at the exact moment that you were figuring this character out, what would we have seen? You would have probably called EMS thinking that the lady next to you was having a seizure. <laughs> I'm sure of it. There was a lot of contortion. There was a lot of contorting the torso to get the sound out initially. It, um, yeah, that. Or else you might have just thought, well, she's, she's really having fun in there, isn't she? <laughs> Were the windows down or up? Uh, you know, it depends on the speed of the traffic. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> uh, Rupert, I'm... I'm really intrigued by the kind of mirror images of the two stories of Judy that we see in this film, the younger Judy and uh, the older Judy. And there's even montages where you're going back and forth between the, the two different ages. My understanding is that you guys worked with Tom Edge, the screenwriter, to really have specific scenes of childhood Judy and specific scenes of adult Judy mirror each other. Can you explain that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I suppose we, uh, we, we always knew that the film wasn't going to be a kind of whole life biopic. Uh, it was going to look at what it meant to be at the end of your life as a creative artist and and, and Judy's particularly extraordinary end of her life, but also how the seeds of that had been sown uh, at, at her very beginning. And um, so we came up with this sort of structure, um, almost a sort of uh, classical structure, I suppose, with the older, with the, the 38 scenes, where uh, sort of the initial pact with Louis B. Mayer about, you know, the pact for fame, the pact for stardom, then the understanding of the consequences the rebellion, the punishment, and then 
ultimately the sort of understanding that there is a complicity from Garland herself in her relationship with the audience and that although of course she had all sorts of privations and suffering she was a born performer and, and born to perform and at some level that was in the heart of um the the, the decision she made and, and I guess the we tried to kind of see the relationship between those actions in the early period with the later period. David, for a film that has locations that are so important to it and finding a theater that felt like the talk of the town and finding the hotel, you know, finding a, a set that looked like the hotel suite. When you think back to putting this whole production together, what was the biggest challenge as far as finding the perfect location for something? Well, the, the one the one that was most important was the uh, talk of the town. So it was the Hackney Empire that we chose in the end, and we went to see near derelict theatres in Streatham, in uh, with roofs falling in, and Rupert was going, "Yeah, we can rebuild it." Uh, uh, but it, what was important was to find, and this is sort of slightly a crossover to you as well, but we needed to find a somewhere with a thrust stage, you know, um, which was what the talk of the town had, and it had this black, inky. Uh, stage and we needed that to be to be part of it and again coming back to Rosalind Wilder Rosalind was the one that kind of gave us all these pictures from way back when like had all these snapshots so she she was quite useful in that regard so we knew what the fine feathers who the dancers knew exactly what they looked like and how they dressed and we knew exactly what the stage would look like I don't know if you want to say anything on on it yeah that that, that, that particular thrust stage architecturally certainly in, in uh, London is quite hard to find because it's about the relationship between the circle and the stage and most proscenium Victorian theatres have a closer circle so you couldn't build out a thrust stage uh, the Hackney Empire which is restored by a big lottery grant uh, about 15 years ago is a, a lyric house it's for operetta and uh, um I guess opera performances in the late um, 19th century and it allowed us to, to build out further but even then there was a lot of logistical problems about finding a theatre that was going to be free for the amount of time we had and we had this very narrow window of six days to I think we had three days to fit up and then six days to shoot and get out and uh, it was pretty uh, crazy <laughs> uh, the audience agrees by the murmuring <laughs> Renee, you had um, a Netflix series, What If, that also premiered this year, but you shot this first, meaning that this set was the first that you had been on in five or so years. When you stepped onto the set for the first few days to make this film, what did you find you had missed the most about set life? Um, the camaraderie. You know, I love that collaborative experience of trying to discover things and find out what's possible and make things happen and tiny miracles every day when you actually pull something off that seems impossible. That's that's it. That's always been what I love most about the about this job. Um, and when you watch the finished product of this, and we spoke a little about this yesterday. I know it's important to you that people understand that this was, yes, it's your performance, but there were a lot of people at play to help you create Every day. what we saw. Who were the people who you remember as being the most integral? Uh, well, these guys were there for the whole thing. Um, and and it, it did. It felt like a fluid sort of um, a series of experiments. We just started trying things with that visit in London, and then we just continued on from there. We uh, worked with Jeremy Woodhouse and Rob Crafter, who was his assistant, who did fantastic makeup. I mean, just fantastic every day. Um, you know, the 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 glam was period, um, and the prosthetics were, um, I think. Uh, 
pretty hard to find, hard to see. Uh, and it was just a, a big, you know, a big process. And they did a great job trying everything. We just tried, uh, we first put it all on and then took it all off. And <laughs> I would have kept it all on if I could have more, more to hide behind. But, um, and then we, uh, you know, the composer, Matt Dinkley was there, uh, working on the music every day. And, um, and then Andrew, the piano player warmed me up and he was like, uh, cheering. Yes, you can. <laughs> and, uh, um, let's see, who else was the, I mean, there's so, Janine Tamim, who made these beautiful costumes, which are just out of this world. I mean, inspired by Judy's dress in the days. And she used um, antique sequins from France from the period to make these dresses as authentically as she could. And, and then she fit them to my assumed posture so that they wouldn't zip up if I wasn't standing like I was supposed to. Yeah, so, I mean, all of these, it does, you know, it's true to be disciplined by antique sequins. <laughs> <laughs> and just to, sorry, just to throw in, since we've done the list, Cave Quinn, who did the production design, who um, just, you know, incredible. he did that amazing mm -hmm. job. And, like, you know, we're working, it's not a $50 million budget, you know, so she's, you know, she's trying to accommodate everything that Rupert's constantly demanding every day <laughs> uh, and doing an amazing job. I mean, it just, it looks fantastic. Rupert, one kind of show-stopping moment that I just love both times that I've seen this film now is the first big number that we hear Judy singing by myself, uh, where she's kind of pushed out on, on stage by Rosalind. And you do it in one shot, and it's spectacular. How early in the process did you know that the first song was going to be one shot, and how many takes of it did you all do? Uh, well, I was, I was, I feel like we see performers on TV so much and I was looking for something that was sort of a, a bit different to the kind of American Idol kind of um, vision of singing we, we get every day. Um, and I, I'd um, been influenced by uh, Fred Astaire had said this thing about choreography that, that uh, he always wanted to see the whole body and never cut away because you knew it was happening in camera in the moment. Uh, and um, I think that's true about any kind of performance. If you see in a single shot, you know that it, particularly if the performance requires a level of technique and uh, commitment that is exceptional, seeing it happen in real time, I think gives you a, a thrill, like seeing somebody climb up a rock face without ropes. Um, but it's very demanding, of course, because it's a big sing sing song. And, um, you know, I think uh, Renee knew it was going to be a tough sing. Uh, we also had a, well, we got in on the on that day. We only had one day to get that. Um, and the floor we'd put in at Hackney Empire didn't take the crane. The crane was too heavy for the floor. So we had to rethink the whole shot like on the fly um, and, and reconceive it just with putting some roster up and kind of, it was just fantastic grip work actually really because they were the, the guys were like, are going up apple crates trying to kind of uh, catch the shot and of course all it takes is one focus pull or something and then we're out and Renee's sing uh, singing teacher had said like we might get I don't know eight eight goes at this and then her voice will go and I think we did nine or ten maybe nine in the end um and uh and then of course you're you're working with the playback in the ear and I think on, on one of the key takes it it cut out so poor old Renee had to sing without any accompaniment for a while um but we got that one extraordinary performance. And I think I think all those different pressures, the, the technical pressure above all for Renee to be able to, to deliver the vocal, but then also everyone else working on it created a very intense, um, focused, uh, fraught atmosphere. And I think you get that off the screen. Okay, I have more questions about this scene. So mm -hmm. you, you do it nine times. Is it like, okay, I just did it 
get now I need to just chill out for a few minutes or were you ready to go immediately after? Yeah, she, yeah. It was, the two, it was the two guys carrying the camera that needed to rest. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, they that's had right. sweat pouring off that's them. Right. I mean, like, that's, it's, it's an its own awards category, that, for those guys. <laughs> yeah, and I think, we, I think we, although we did it nine times, I think only four of them were complete because something went wrong. And so, uh, yeah, I think we, I mean, there is a theory that if you can sing once, this is how rock singers do it, if you sing one song a night, then theoretically you can sing 20 or something because the muscle is warm. Uh, but there's a limit to that. And uh, it's a big space and, it, um, you know, we've done a lot of work rehearsing the song, but you, it wasn't like you were on tour and had been doing it night after night. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was um, tense. <laughs> and then considering how you had to make the finished audio so pristine for people who were uh background players sitting in the audience all they were hearing was your voice because you had the band in your ear is that true so you were basically singing acapella for everybody i mean not acapella because well for everyone sitting in the audience am i understanding oh, that correctly oh god i had thought about that <laughs> oh i'm glad i didn't think about that <laughs> Oh man! Um, I guess. Yeah, yeah she I was guess. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man. We got this amazing thing where. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> when I read that, I went, "That's crazy." But sorry, go on. But no, but the crowd. Well, you know, like you know, you're paying them to stand and applaud and you know do everything that you you need for the shot, and then. Rupert would shout out cut and then they'd give a standing ovation for Renee. It was like, we were like you could have done that earlier. <laughs> so Renee, when you think about everything that went into perfecting Judy's performance, there's the singing, there's the dancing and the movement, and there's the unique facial expressions which you capture so beautifully. When you think about all those three things, was there one aspect of it that was particularly challenging to feel like you had it mastered? Um, those are big words. I don't know about perfecting and mastering anything. <laughs> Feeling um, good about it. I, I feel like, um, gosh, it's so interesting. When I think back on this, I don't think about it in the traditional sense of making a film um, because it didn't feel like the same kind of process. Again, it felt like we were trying things together, you know, and we were all digging around to see if, like Rupert called it, mining for treasure. We were mining for these little bits that seemed essential to collect in order to conjure her essence in some way. And it, she was, it felt like she, she was everywhere, her photographs and the sound of her voice and interviews and, and her music and, and you know, uh, the stories going around and the things that somebody had discovered the night before that they bring that day. So it felt like, I don't know, it was, it, it was almost palpable in every room that we were working in. This essence of this extraordinary person and the legacy of her work was very much alive. It sort of just started to, to soak in for, for everybody. Um, and in terms of difficulty, uh, it was such a joy that I can't look at it like that. It just felt like spoiled, rotten, you know. Um, what a wonderful professional obligation to have, you know, to go down the Judy rabbit hole and just, <laughs> you know, feast on that every day. Um, 
but some things took more time, but we had time. So in the beginning, the, <laughs> the year before, we, we had that time, so. Were you able to set the shooting schedule in such a way that certain things that were a heavier lift were saved to the end? Were there musical numbers that you did later in the shoot or did you not have that luxury? Uh, well, the heavy stuff was in, in the venue in that tight week, but um, we I think we were in the studio for the last week, weren't we, um, uh, in an incredibly hot um, set. Um, so that had its own pressures, but uh, uh, I mean, it was tight. It was a tight schedule. I can't remember how long was it, seven weeks? I mean, it was like really, uh, it, it felt like we were, I mean, it was a tribute to everybody's um, I think what happened really early on is, and I'm going to embarrass her now, but, but Renee was obviously so clearly going to, from like the first day, going to be giving such an amazing performance. And these people who were like, Jani Tamimi does the costumes. I mean, she'd done the last two Bond films. She'd done Harry Potter. She, you know, these people were doing, doing it because they, they wanted it to be great. And they knew that Renee was going to do something really, really extraordinary. And it made everybody work with an efficiency and a kind of dedication. And so we would, you know, that, that look, that amazing gone and look that was like less than 90 minutes in the chair for Renee by the time we were filming which meant that we had more time on the day to, to work so we had a you know a very I, I, I felt a very professional setup like experienced professionals wanting to do their best best work because because I remember particularly there was one day I think it's the scene when uh, Renee is being interviewed by the TV interviewer and oh. read and I guess partly because we had all these wonderful references from the Garland interviews from that period, which were particularly pertinent. And because we'd seen those references and been working off those references, and then suddenly there she was. I remember, I think Rufus Sewell came in that day and just to watch. And we were all just in awe of, of what Renee was doing and, and how suddenly it was kind of really evoked. And um, so, so the schedule kind of, although it was demanding, everyone just wanted to make it work. Okay, a couple last things before we let everybody go home. David, I have a question for you. If the answer to this question is no, I won't be upset. Did Judy actually go have dinner at the apartment of a super fan couple? Well, we, we, uh, some of it, it we've, we've grabbed certain elements from elsewhere, but she did go out with fans, definitely. She did go to dinner with fans. So there wasn't Stan and Dan, who are great. But uh, they're, they're Tom Edge's invention, but she did genuinely dine with fans. So there's a kind of yes. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, that's, that's good enough for me. <laughs> and then since we're here at the Academy, Renee, I'm just curious, I like to ask people this question. Where is your Oscar and when you're home, how many times do you walk past it a day and, and notice it? <laughs> um, it is, um, it's by my desk. And it's next to the pictures of my family and my dogs and my best friends. And um, and I'll tell you a quick little story. If nobody, you guys still awake out there? Okay, okay, here we go. Um, well, this may be your opportunity to take a nap. Um, I met uh, Mike Nichols early on in. Um, when I first started out, I guess it was right after Jerry Maguire had come out and I had missed all of the press stuff because I was working in New York City. So I missed all the hoopla and all the thing, but I, I did get to meet Mike Nichols, who, by the way, I carry a huge uh, soft spot for and have, have since and always will. And he said, he asked me, um, hey, do you know? You don't know, do you? I said, I'm sorry, what, what don't I know? He says, you don't know what's about to happen to your life. And I said, um, no, I guess maybe, 
maybe I don't know what's about to happen. He said, yeah, well, what do you think about fame? You know, I said, I don't. I don't think about fame. I'm busy. And he said, uh, well, you should think about fame. He said, because um, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Medusa, you know, um, it's there and it's hovering and you know that it's there and it's extraordinarily dangerous if you don't acknowledge it. And he said, but you don't ever want to look right at it or run to it because it's going to turn you cold as stone. And, and he said, but be aware of it and look at it. Look at it occasionally just to check on it and check where it is and check yourself in relation to it. But look at it through a prism. And the prism should be the people that you love. And that really stuck with me. Anyway, there you go. That's where my Oscar is. I like that. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> okay, and then finally, at the risk of getting a slap in the face, is your Oscar lonely? <laughs> w would it like a friend? <laughs> the dogs are pretty cute. I mean, pretty cute. It's great to be here with all of you. Thanks to, to all of you for sticking around. David, Rupert, Renee. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Academy Conversations Uncut. We hope you enjoyed this unique access to a members-only Q&A at the Academy. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and help us reach film lovers around the world. This podcast was produced by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences.